As we prepare to hear God's word, would you stand as I read from Scripture? Scripture reading today is John 20, 19 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we have heard the reading of your word. We've heard you speak. May our hearts be open to it. Open our minds that we may understand it. Father, above all, we pray that you might apply it to our lives, that we might live before you and before this world as those who rejoice and serve the Lord, the risen and reigning Lord. Pray now that you would guide me as we Think together regarding your word that you would use this time and these words to do your will in our lives for Jesus' sake. We pray. Amen. Well, this is the week after Easter. This is the eight days that the scripture passage spoke of. And we are in the lectionary reading for this day. Uh, this passage in John has been a classic uh, text for this particular Sunday, the Sunday after Easter in the life of the church. It's the, uh, of course, classic account of doubting Thomas. He, he couldn't be faithful Thomas. He couldn't be steadfast Thomas. He couldn't be brave Thomas. He had to be doubting Thomas. You know, that, that sort of slur, we might say, has accompanied Thomas throughout history. He's the one who just wouldn't believe without proof. And now I think he's gotten a bad rap. I think Thomas... Uh, could use some rehabilitating. And so that's my goal this morning as we look at this text. I want to I kind of rehabilitate Doubting Thomas, both uh, with respect to 
the other disciples in his context, and then with respect to, to our opinion of him in our context here today. Um, you know, doubt, doubt is a, a complex, uh, even frightening subject. Uh, many Christians, you know, both present and past generations, viewed doubt as a taboo thing. Uh, you know, you're being arrogant or irreverent. Who are you to question God when you doubt? And, and often, we just simply repress doubts. Don't talk about them, they'll go away. You know, it's like nightmares. You just don't think about it anymore, and then it won't bother you. But <clears throat> we respond to the threat or the challenge of doubt far too often by simply saying, don't doubt, just believe. And that's why I looked at Thomas, because that's not the answer that he got. Not the answer he got. But in our day, that's completely changed. Now it's, it's fashionable. It's what cool people do. They doubt. Doubt everything. Doubt it all. You know, skepticism is the intelligent and sophisticated thing to do, and belief is, is naive and, you know, simplistic. Um, we, we just don't want to be in that category of, of believers. We want to be the sophisticated people. That's what the cool kids do. But I want to say that the doubt isn't necessarily the opposite of faith as we begin to look at the passage this morning. Thomas Merton, who was a, a monk, a Catholic writer, considered by many to be one of the greatest Catholic spiritual writers of the 20th century, said this, you cannot be a person of faith unless you know how to doubt. You cannot be a person of faith unless you know how to doubt. And I'm going to suggest that, that knowing how to doubt, and we'll put that in quotes just for the moment, knowing how to doubt is the way both to true faith for unbelievers and, and to a deeper faith for those who do believe. Knowing how to doubt is the way both to true faith for unbelievers and to a deeper faith for those who already believe. So, if we're going to rehabilitate Thomas this morning, we need to look a little more closely at what the Scripture says and, and then see what lessons we can learn from a doubter. That's the title of my message this morning. Lessons from a doubter. So, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me back to Luke. Turn to Luke, chapter 24, 36 to 43. Now, Luke, Luke begins, 36 is at the end of the account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you know that story, they're walking, lamenting the death of Jesus, his crucifixion. Jesus comes and walks along with them. They don't recognize him. He says, what are you talking about? And they say, um, you know, we, this guy that God seemed to be with, we thought he was the one, and yet, you know, he's hung on the tree, and yet we heard that, you know, he's, he's risen. Jesus appears to them, they recognize him, he disappears, now they scoot back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. Verse 35, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, that is the disciples in that upper room, locked as John tells us for fear of the Jews, and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why did doubts 
arise in your hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still doubted or disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Touch me and see. He offers to the disciples the very same thing that Thomas asked for. We don't talk about the doubting ten. We talk about the doubting Thomas. They were just as much in doubt. He came, he showed them the very things that Thomas demanded to see, and it says, while they still disbelieved. Now, why don't they get a rap for doubting? Jesus was right in front of them, demonstrating himself. And he says, look, ghosts don't have flesh and blood, okay? You get that? Give me something to eat, and you can see. You won't be able to watch it disappear down my elementary canal. You know, I'm real, flesh and blood. I'm not a ghost. And so the disciples have the opportunity to do exactly what Thomas asked to be able to do. And yet Thomas is the one who's known as the doubter. So if you'll turn with me back to the passage in John. See, verse 24 tells us Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus came. Now... The reason he doubts is he thinks what the other disciples are saying is ridiculous. People don't rise from the dead. That's not the kind of world we live in. Sorry, you guys. You saw something maybe, you know, as as, uh, Scrooge says regarding Marley's ghost. You could have been a bit of bad beef. Maybe it's indigestion that's bothering you. But I'm not believing it unless I myself can put my fingers in the nail holes and thrust my hand into his side. It just doesn't happen. Unless Jesus comes here right in front of me, I'm not believing it. Definitive. I'll never believe, says verse 25. So that's Easter evening. All right? He's appeared earlier. He's gone. Thomas comes, says, hmm, you guys are making it up. Eight days later, says verse 26, there they are all together again. Jesus comes, appears before them, even though the doors were locked, and he says to Thomas, Thomas's own words. Put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Thrust it in my side. Don't disbelieve. Don't continue to doubt, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas sees and believes. Scripture doesn't record, and I think there's no reason to even suggest that he actually goes ahead and touches the nail wounds or thrusts his hand in the side. Jesus is there. Jesus repeats him to him the very words that Thomas had spoken a week before. And Thomas is overwhelmed with the reality. This is Jesus. He's alive. But he's not just Jesus. He's not just you know, the man that we walk through, Galilee and Judea over the last three years. This is Lord and God. This is, in in one sense, the most complete, the most devout, the deepest affirmation of the divinity of Christ in all of the confessions of the New Testament. Lord and God, says Thomas. This is Jesus. And Jesus says, well, great. You see me and you believe. I tell you what, Those who don't see and yet believe, they are blessed. And John, verse 30 and 31, our our translations 
don't do us a favor by interjecting that headline, the purpose of this book, because it breaks up the flow. John's writing, he's recording, he says, I put this stuff in here so you'll believe. What did he put in here? Well, the text says, many other signs. In other words, properly understood, the resurrection is the sign par excellence. John's gospel is divided into seven signs from the changing of the water into wine on up through this. And they're accompanied by Jesus' teaching. Signs and sayings is John's framework. And so within that framework of purpose, he has included this account of Thomas's encounter with Jesus. John includes this ultimate sign in declaring the purpose of his gospel. So, if John can make use of Thomas for his purpose, then what use can we make of Thomas this morning? I'm going to suggest four lessons that we can learn from a doubter today. Four lessons. You can follow along in your insert if that's helpful to you. I shared this story before, but it's to the point, so I'm going to share it again. I was in ROTC when I was a freshman in college, and my freshman year, I was in the drill team. We wore West Point grays with tall hats and white plumes on top, and we had shoes so shiny you could shave in them, and we spun three Springfields with 18-inch chrome bayonets, and we were cool. We were fancy. We were the drill team. But it was also a little girly when you think about it. So sophomore year, I decided I wanted to be in the Rangers. I wanted to up my man game and be in the Rangers. The, we had two of my fellow classmates. One was Matthew B. Ridgway, Jr. Matt Ridgway was the son of General Matthew Ridgway, who was appointed to take the place of Douglas MacArthur in charge of the, Korean, uh, the forces in the Korean War. MacArthur had been sacked by Harry Truman, and Matthew B. Ridgway took his place. And this is Matt Ridgway, Jr. We're, we're talking profile here. He's in charge of the section of the Rangers that I'm in. And his roommate, Jock Willers, never forget that name. Picture Jock, square jaw, sandy hair, short crew cut. These guys headed up the Rangers. So I go to the first Ranger meeting, and we're talking about a, a little maneuver we're going to have. Jock's head of the blue team, and they're over in some part of the building planning and we're the red team, and our job is to go in and defend a perimeter. We've got a little flag and, and a makeshift radio, and, and so we set up our perimeter, and it looks like a keyhole, an old-fashioned keyhole. So as we're explaining this, I'm looking, and I think, there's nothing at the bottom of the keyhole. But, you know, I was in that girly drill team last year, and this is Matt Ridgway Jr., so just keep your mouth shut, okay? So I did. Comes the night of the, uh, you know, the big maneuver. We go out. We're dumped by trucks in the dark. We make our way to our post. We set up our perimeter. We lay there on the ground till about 3.30 in the morning. And then the signal flare goes off. And we gather back at the truck. And uh, the blue team has our flag. As we debrief the mission, the question is, how did you guys get there? Well, we scouted the perimeter. We came to the bottom. And there was nobody there. And so we just kind of went up the draw, got the flag, and went back out. And I thought to myself, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I say anything? I was too proud. I was afraid of being, you know, made fun of. Being called, you know, you're in the drill team. I'm just saying it's a little girly. We're the Rangers, okay? But I recognized that I kept my mouth shut and it cost the mission. And so that's my first point here today. The only dumb question is the one you don't ask. 
I tell classes, look, I only get really, really mad at one question. And they're like, <gasps> yeah, the one you won't ask me. Because if you don't ask a question, how do I know that I didn't answer it? You know, I might think, boy, this class is so brilliant. They understand everything I say. And they're all just scratching their heads going, I don't understand anything he's talking about. But nobody will say anything. So the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. And, and Thomas's question, if you will, we're like doubting Thomas. What a dummy. Why doesn't he just believe? But Thomas insists on seeing Jesus in the flesh. And as a result, we have the resurrection established not only for him, but for all the subsequent history of the church. Thomas' insistence on asking the dumb question is the key to the rest of us having the question answered. Undeniably, indubitably, eternally, he is risen, Lord and God. And that resurrection is the, after all, it's the crux, the center. Crux is the Latin word for cross. It is the center of Christian faith. He is risen. As we responded last week, he is risen indeed. In two of my study groups at work at where we've been looking at C.S. Lewis's little classic, Mere Christianity. And in that book, Lewis talks about faith in two different senses. First is related to reason, and the second is in a sense of salvation. But, but in the first sense, talking about faith related to reason, Lewis says, faith is a way of believing a proposition. Quote, what is there moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements, writes Lewis. A sane man accepts or rejects any statement, not because he wants or does not want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. So Lewis says in this first sense, faith is related to reason. It's not against reason. In other words, faith is not, says Lewis, it's not belief against reason or belief without reasons. Faith is, is wedded to reason. It's, it's the outcome of reason. And for Lewis, it is a matter of accepting statements on the basis of their substantiation, their proof, we might say. And so, so the resurrection is that in terms of its facticity. Yes, the, the theological meaning of the cross and the resurrection is salvific, and that's the Christian faith. But, but the faith in the resurrection is not, in that particular sense, salvific at all for Lewis. It's a matter of doubt or faith. Are you going to believe it or not believe it? Uh, what grounds for believing it? What reasons for believing it? And, and yet, the reasons for faith are not often talked about. We, we have sort of slipped over into a fideistic understanding. Well, I, I just believe. You know, I do believe in ghosts. I do believe. I do believe. We, we squinch up and we just, you know, I do believe. Why? We don't ask that. We don't want to be intrusive, offensive, whatever. But a recent article in Christianity Today, headline, The biggest hindrance to your kid's faith isn't doubt. It's silence. It says here, According to a study looked at 500 youth group graduates, over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. And yet, sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. 
Yes, says the article, these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts are actually correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence. We don't talk about doubts. Well, the question is why? Why is that? Recall when I was in uh, flight school in Pensacola, every week in, in aerodynamics we would have a test. And Thursday the instructor would come in to do a review of what we'd studied, and he'd always ask the class, you guys want to understand this stuff or you just want to gouge for the exam? And we're like, oh, we just want to pass the test. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, yeah, but if you don't understand this, it'll kill you. You don't get to just pass the test. You have to understand what you're doing. And that's the thing with Christian faith. If we don't grasp the crux of it, if we don't establish the foundation of faith, we're dead because we'll just get swept away by emotions or feelings. We have to, quote, understand this stuff. In Lewis's terms, we're not believing against reason. We're not believing without reasons. Faith is wedded to reason. What are the reasons for accepting the resurrection? And thanks to Thomas and his dumb question, we have grounds for that. But I think the other thing we need to see in this encounter with Jesus is that doubt itself is not a sin. Doubt doubt itself is not a sin. Notice Thomas isn't met with silence. He doesn't get a divine rebuke. Everybody doesn't stand back so that the lightning strike doesn't hit them. Jesus accepts that question responds to it in exactly the words that Thomas had used to raise it. Look, go ahead. Stick your fist into my side, which is really more coarsely what the Greek says. Unless I thrust my fist into his side, Jesus says, go ahead, take your shot, Thomas. And he declares, my Lord and my God. Thomas, Thomas gets it. He gets it. Reality contains a resurrected Savior. Thomas's whole world has to expand at this point. Now, Jesus doesn't talk to Thomas about the finer points of Reformed theology. He doesn't question Thomas or examine him on, you know, 24-7 hours of creation or some other mode to Genesis 1. They don't engage in the discussion of the problem of evil because regardless of Thomas's doubts, questions, knowledge, insight, experience with those issues... Jesus is there in front of him with hands pierced and side pierced alive. That's the point. Not some fine understanding. The world contains a resurrected man. All of these other questions will not change that. We may disagree violently over Tulip or anything else. Jesus doesn't go back into the grave. Jesus is alive in the midst of discussions and questions, but that's the point. Thomas recognizes that this one is alive. This world in which I live contains a risen Savior. So his doubt isn't treated as a sin. But not all doubt, we recognize this, not all doubt is honest and, and sincere. It's not, it's not genuinely intellectual. It's not open to evidence or reason. In many cases, doubt's just an excuse. It's a way to keep God out there and not have him bother me. And we we keep putting up smoke screens so we can get off the hook and we don't have to deal with with God. 
we, we can just be willfully, willfully blind. I remember a friend of mine, after I became a Christian guy I'd known for years, and I still know him, love him, in fact. But man, talking to him about things of faith was like being on a bicycle wheel. There were just a thousand spokes. And I finally said to him one time, I said, Dave, look, you know, we can go out every one of these spokes to the rim, and that can go on forever. We just never get to the hub. And the hub is Jesus. The hub is Jesus. But if you don't want to go to the hub, I don't want to go to the rim. I just don't have time for that. And so we, we've agreed to let that there. But you see, we, we distract ourselves with the notion of doubts. No, there's a fundamental issue. That, that while doubt itself is not a sin, it's true that sin can lead you into professing doubts. You see, if you don't want God to be a part of your life and you just want to go on living the way you're living, you don't want to change your life that the belief in Jesus would bring about, then you're going to have all kinds of doubts. But they're not there because you have discovered something. You know, Jesus' body hasn't suddenly popped up out of the tomb somewhere. They're there because you don't want God to bother you. And you want to continue in your sin. And that's the reality of the world in which we live. Doubt may not be uh, sin, but sin will certainly lead you to profess doubts. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. This is somewhat problematic, but I think the best way to understand that is when you declare the gospel and people receive it, when they hear the gospel and respond, their sins are forgiven. You can say that to them. In the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And if they say, nah, I don't need that, then they're not forgiven. It's not that I have the power or the apostles even have the power. It is that the gospel itself proclaims and accomplishes freedom for those who receive it, forgiveness. And for those who reject it, they remain in their sins. They remain in death. As Augustine is quoted of saying, you know, make me holy, but not quite yet. There's where the doubts enter in. So, the only dumb question is the one you won't ask. Doubt itself is not a sin. Third, addressing doubts is the way to grow in faith. I was walking across campus at Ware the other day, and I noticed the um, newly sprayed mulch in the flower beds. There's some interesting-looking green things starting to pop up, and some of them are already getting yellow heads. Dandelion, as they say. <laughs> Teeth of the lion, literally, in French. That's what the, the dandelions are coming. The dandelions are coming. Guess what? You dig where those little green things are, you're not going to have those yellow things. And you're not going to have those white things that spread all over the lawn and plant themselves everywhere. In other words, you dig them up early. Addressing doubts is the way to grow in faith. you got to address them. Jesus says to Thomas, you know, don't disbelieve, or in one translation, don't continue in your unbelief. And Thomas doesn't. He confesses Jesus is the Lord himself. God has come to Thomas. It's him. Not, not just Jesus. It is Lord and God has come to him. And then that doubt of Thomas has now given way to worship. In his particular case, because he wasn't afraid to ask the stupid question. But, but what is it in our case? You see, 
for a doubter to become a deeply devoted disciple, you have to encounter the Lord in all of those areas of doubt. Okay, we've got the crooks, the center of it settled. Jesus is raised. Now we can talk about tulip or 24-7 theories of Genesis 1 and 2. You know, we, we can enter into those things to explore them because they do not touch on the issue of the foundation of faith. Jesus is alive. But now let's grow in faith. Let's, let's take on the questions that trouble us. Mark chapter 4 tells of the disciples being in the boat where Jesus is sleeping. The storm comes up. And they're like, oh, Lord, aren't you, don't you worry we're going to die. And Jesus rebukes the storm. You know, peace be still. And the disciples, it says, were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, just like Thomas, the disciples' worldview at that moment now has to admit the the unimaginable but unmistakable reality that there is a man that can say to the wind, knock it off. And to the seas, behave. That's scary. But now, their worldview has to include that because it's there. We too live in a world where a man, the God-man, can say to the wind, behave. To the seas, be still. And it happens. That's the nature of the world. And that's where addressing doubts comes in. We have a Christian worldview that's built on the reality of the cross and the God-man, Jesus Christ, dying and rising and now sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning. And these kinds of things did happen. Did happen. And yet, we are afraid to deal with them. Afraid to deal with them. I'm reading an article entitled Doubt Your Faith at an Evangelical College. It's part of the process. And the article says, it's common for students at Christian colleges to question their faith. In fact, it says they are more likely to feel unsettled about spiritual matters, unsure of their beliefs, disillusioned with their religious upbringing, distant from God or angry with God more likely to feel that way than their peers at secular schools as well as mainline Protestant and Catholic schools. Why is that? I want to suggest that it's because they haven't encountered doubts. They haven't connected with doubts. If you don't deal and address doubts, you won't grow in your faith. And then when the storms come... Instead of being opportunities to experience growth in faith, they become shipwrecks of our faith. I'm reminded, I've shared this before, but the pastor's up front doing the children's sermon. He invites the boys and girls forward. He says to them, now boys and girls, what's gray, has a bushy tail, lives in a tree, and eats nuts? Long pause. Finally, a little boy in the back goes, um, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) I'm sorry for that kid. He gets to college, he's going to get chewed up in his first biology class. Why? Because he knows the answer is Jesus, but, but he doesn't know anything else. Well, the answer is Jesus, and in that regard, I agree with the kid. But now you've got to build on that. All of life's challenges don't come as 
a question, is Jesus really Jesus? No, they come in other directions. They come from blindsiding you. They knock you off balance. They're what your friends say. It's what your teacher says. You know, it's what your big sister or your big brother went off to university and learned and comes back and says to you. And now you don't know what to do. You're in a tumble. I remember when I first became a believer at, at, um, at Labrie in England. Uh, it was a week of Palm Sunday, and we had a break on Wednesday. I, I'd come to know Jesus like three days before. And Kathy and I went into town on a break, and we went to this bookstore. I didn't have categories, but I do now. And this was a whole array of liberal theological books. And I was thumbing through one that was sort of a pictorial history of the Old Testament. And it was talking about how, you know, there are all these repetitions in the Old Testament of various things that happen over and over again. And the author asserts that, well, it just happened once. And as they told the story around the campfire, you know, it grew and multiplied. And that's why it's there. And I'm, I'm leaving shaking my head. I'm like, well, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, what do I know? I'm only a believer for three days. But it just happened, quote, happened, that we had scheduled tea with one of the couples that were in charge of uh, Labrie. It was, it was uh, Dr. Francis Schaefer's daughter and son-in-law, uh, Ronald and Susan McCauley. And as we're sitting there, I explained the situation, what had happened as we went to the bookstore, and I looked at these books. And he said to me, you know, your Christian life is a little bit, and he used Apollo 13 as an example. You know, Apollo 13 was a space mission that some fixed... 56 hours into the flight, oxygen tank blew, and suddenly it was problematic as whether or not they were even going to get back to Earth. Well, they had to kind of orbit and wait for Houston to figure out how to handle this mess. And so Randall said to me, you know, Christian life is like that. You encounter explosions, perhaps, and all of a sudden you're not sure what to do next, what the answer is. He said, you got two choices. You go, Houston, we got a problem. And Houston says, all right, Apollo 13, we'll be getting back to you. Hang on. You can orbit, or you can just abandon ship and die. He said, in the Christian life, it's interesting. Sometimes that question is answered the very next hour. Sometimes it's a week later, maybe a month. It may be years, and you still don't have an answer, but you still have the same choice. You can keep orbiting, or you can abandon the mission. And you have to ask yourself, which, as a believer in Jesus, makes sense. Well, that was a great answer to a kid with a question who was an early believer. You keep orbiting, because you know this, Jesus is alive. The resurrection is real. We live in a world where a man can say to the storms, stop it. So he can say to your doubts, here's the answer, when he wants to, not on your time frame. But he has and is the answer. So you keep orbiting. And there'll be different questions, you know. It won't be the oxygen bottle that blows up. It'll be something else. But you'll have to deal with it. And not because you, quote, know the answer, but because you know Jesus and you keep orbiting. And this is where it really raises my last point then. Your witness depends on handling your own doubts. Your witness depends on handling your own doubts. Jesus says here in verse 21, as he first appears, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In other words, God is a missionary God. He has called you and me to go, as the Great Commission tells us, to go and declare the gospel 
to the entire world. As the Father has sent me and I have done my work, says Jesus, now I am sending you to continue the Father's work to the world. But that witness will depend upon handling your own doubts. A national study for youth and religion discovered that young people have become inarticulate about their faith, often lacking the language to express their beliefs and convictions. So have their parents. Somehow, young people and their parents have lost the ability to speak of faith in real life. And I want to say part of the reason for that is that we have lost our ability to deal with doubt. We haven't dealt with it. We are what I call daisy disciples. God loves me. He loves me not. God loves me. He loves me not. God loves me. What, what, what makes them not love me? Well, our kids had a little devotional when they were young. It was called, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? And, and we just have the same question with different answers. God loves me because. God hates me because. God loves me because. God hates me because. Daisy Disciples. Where's the core of confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If that isn't the center of our lives, then we will be just blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine and every emotion that comes to us. One of the writers who was examining C.S. Lewis's uh, material had this to say. What Lewis taught me is that my existential suffering does not and cannot cancel out the historical truth of the resurrection of our Lord, the ultimate basis for the Christian faith and hope in Christ's promises. I am reminded that death and the hurt attentive to it, he lost his father, death and the hurt attentive to it does not defeat the truth of the resurrection. When emotions scream that God is not there, Lewis has helped me to see that reason does not likewise scream. The fact of Christ's empty grave, his love, and his commitment to us still persist. And these truths are accessible to reason even when emotions run amok. Even when life isn't going great, God is still God. Jesus is still raised. He is Lord of all things. We may be having a tough day. That happens. In this world, you will have trouble, said Jesus. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so John ends this section saying, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, if, if, if that is our desire as the church, as the people of God, to enable others to hear and to know that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God, and that in him and in him alone there is life, then, then each of us have a choice to make. We can, we can either nourish our doubts and starve our faith, or we can deal with our doubts and share our faith. So just a couple practical things as a conclusion. So what are your doubts? Mine, mine was the whole arena of evolution. I'll confess, you know, like I, ooh, what was that about? I have studied that for 30 years. I have shelves of stuff. For me, that was absolutely life-giving. 
The other arena that I worked in was philosophy. And I, I found a, a kindred spirit and a brother in Christ in Soren Kierkegaard, who has been discarded by many. And I'd love to talk about him and talk with you about him. But just a couple examples. Make a list of the most pressing, troubling, difficult, or long-lasting doubts or questions that you have. Make a list. You know, God knows what's in your heart and mind. You're not hiding anything from him. Write it down. Get it in front of you. As long as it's out there where you can keep an eye on it, don't let it sneak around behind you and bite you in the back. Make a list. Find a Christian friend. Talk to him about it. Read a book about it. Talk to the pastor. Be part of a small group. You know, you could go on and on and on with the answers, but the important thing is that we need to learn the lessons from the doubter. There's no such thing as a dumb question. It's only the one you don't ask. That doubt is not a sin. That addressing doubts is how we grow in faith. And that ultimately, of course, our witness depends upon how we've handled our own doubts. Now, God is sovereign. Don't hear me saying that, you know, it depends on me figuring out, you know, the answers to the universe. I'm simply saying that if we are to have the confidence to speak into a world which is lost, then we better have that confidence grounded in Jesus' resurrection and do some of the study that that's going to require. And the Lord will be with us because he desires his people to be saved, to be called, and to believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in such a great salvation. How we who lived in darkness have been brought into light. How we who were enemies have been made your children. How we who were in death now have life. So, Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the word made flesh that dwelt among us. Thank you for Jesus and his love that took him to the cross. Thank you, Lord, for his sinless life which meant that the grave could not hold him, but that the grave was overcome in his death. And our sins were put away as far as the east is from the west through the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, lead us into a world that is desperately in need of the truth of the gospel. And may we do so with confidence, with humility, as Peter tells us, but with confidence that Jesus is alive and he is Lord and God. We pray these things in his name. Amen.